Good morning. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 18. And we're back in the book of Matthew. We took a little break and did a little side series on the, in the uh, Old Testament prophet Haggai. And, uh, but we're back in Matthew this morning. And this morning, as I read this text, one thing jumped out at me, and it was this. You are asking the wrong question. That's what I would have shouted at the disciples if I would have been Jesus dealing with who he's dealing with here. Uh, And I think that it's an important part of Scripture for us to look at this morning. I just want to read for us out of Matthew 18, and we're just going to read the first uh, four, or actually the first ten verses, or first nine verses, but we're just going to focus on the first four verses this morning. So follow along in your Bibles as I read out of Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. This chapter is just a... uh, very common chapter to a lot of us. There's a lot of verses in here that will just jump out to you, and you'll say, oh, I, that's where that's at in the Bible. I remember hearing about that. So as we work our way through Matthew 18 in the coming weeks, hopefully that a lot of this will uh, be put in its context. And um, we can't help but look at the very uh, beginning here of these four verses as we look at this. We see our Lord grabbing a child, picking up an infant, and bringing him over in the midst of his disciples. When you look throughout the scriptures, throughout the Bible, as believers, we're referred to as a lot of things. But one thing, probably the most predominant thing, that God refers to those who believe in him and trust in him for their salvation is that word children. Beyond anything else, we're called children of God, children of the Lord, of promise, whatever. You can go on and on and see throughout the Word of God that constantly uses that word children to designate believers, followers of God. Over and over again, we're called that. And it's kind of a comforting thought for us when you stop and think about it, that God thinks of us as his children. Because if he thinks of us as his children, then that must mean that he's our father, And being a child of God isn't just limited to the fact that we belong to God in that kind of a relationship, that we're in his family. I think that when we think think of ourselves as children of God, there's so much more that is involved there. It doesn't only mean that we belong to God, but I think it really means that we are literally children. (laughs) And I think that that's an important point as we begin this chapter, to understand. When you think of a child, you think of someone who is imperfect, who's weak, who's dependent, simple, submissive, 
at times. Unskilled, depending how old they are, I guess. Ignorant, they don't have a lot of knowledge. They're vulnerable. And it implies that designation, a relationship to God. But it also implies that we're not the greatest bunch of of people who are followers of God. It classifies us as children. How many times have you heard somebody say to somebody, oh, you're just acting like a child? I've never heard somebody who's been on the other end of that say, oh, thank you for the compliment. It's not a compliment. That means you're acting immature. You're not acting like an adult. In 1 John 2.12, it says that we are children. He says, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven. And so as we look at this text, we have to understand that the whole chapter, 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 Matthew 18, describes the believer as children, as a child. It's all about the childlikeness of the believer. And in other portions of Scripture, we know that we're not the high, we're not the mighty, we're not the noble that are called, the lofty or the mature, the profound to follow Christ, but he's chosen the what? The low, the base things of this world. We are lowly children at best. If you have a Bible, you can write over chapter 18, the childlikeness of the believer, because that's what this whole chapter is going to talk about. The whole section here, Jesus is, remember, he's coming away from all the crowds. He's ministered to the crowds. He's done that. He's been there. Not that he doesn't still interact with the crowds, because we're going to still see he interacts with them occasionally. But now his full focus is on training his disciples. And he's giving them as much information and truth as he can, because he realizes that pretty soon... He's going to be on the cross. And they're going to need all the help they can get. So this isn't a time for the crowds. It's a time for him to gather his disciples together. And they are the object of his teaching. And so he's teaching them in verse 1. And as verse 1 indicates there, the disciples kind of gathered around him. And he teaches them regarding their own childness. Childlikeness. Look at what it says in verse 1. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus asking or saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There's the question. But notice that verse begins at that little phrase, At that time. At that time. Well, the question is, what, at what time? What's he talking about here? Well, it basically means that it's talking about just what happened. At that time, at the same time. At the same time what? You remember when we left off in chapter 17, what was happening? Peter was dealing with the, the tax, and the Lord said, yeah, we'll pay the tax, go down, and you find a fish, and you catch the fish, and, but we're not really told what happens. We're assuming that that's exactly what happened. So somewhere between 17.27 and 18.1, Peter's out fishing. He's down there looking for this fish with this coin in it. Because the tax collectors were asking certain questions of his Lord. And so Peter came back and the Lord sent him on his way to go find the temple tax in a fish, which is truly a miracle. I mean, can you imagine that? 
And it says there, at the same time. And we, clo- we, we closed off chapter 17 talking about Jesus really sharing with his disciples and those around him the importance of understanding the believer's responsibility in the world. That's what he was talking about the tax for and other things. He was trying to tell them how to relate to the world that they live in. And then it says, at the same time in verse 1 of 18, at that same time, in the very moment, he not talks about, he's not only talking about the believer's relationship to the world, but he begins to talk about the believer's relationship in the family of God. And so he tells them how they can operate as citizens in the world, but he also says, here's how you're going to operate as citizens of the kingdom, children of God. And so the 11 disciples arrive in verse 1 at the same time when Peter's been out there fishing. He's maybe just getting back. And the rest of them have been out walking around discussing certain things. And so the Lord teaches them through this profound passage in verses 1 through 4 some very important truths that we're going to glean out of here this morning. It's probably, they're probably in Capernaum near Peter's house. It says that they came, the disciples came on to Jesus. Now, if you look over to the Gospel of Mark... It gives us a little bit of insight. There's a couple parallel accounts there for you. You can read them aside. But turn over to Mark chapter 9 and look at verse 33. Because it gives us a little more insight on what's actually going on here as the other 11 are out there walking around and they're coming on to Jesus. It says in verse 33 of Mark 9, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, probably Peter's house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? I think it's rather interesting that the Lord even knew they were discussing anything. Isn't it incredible how our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, knows what's going on before it even happens? Kind of a rhetorical question. Look at what they say in verse 34. It says there, but they what? They kept silence. They held their own, depending on what translation you have. Why would they, they, he asked them a simple question, what were you guys talking about? I remember when I was little, once in a while we'd be talking about something maybe we shouldn't be talking about. And my sister-in-law or my brother would come in, hey, what are you guys talking about? You know, we didn't say nothing, we just froze. (laughs) That's the idea. And you've probably had those reactions with your own children when you catch them doing something they shouldn't. What are you guys doing? And they just freeze. That's the idea. The disciples are caught off guard by his question. They didn't say anything because they were arguing, it tells us. It says, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Can you imagine that? Here are the disciples of Christ. He's been training them. He's been teaching them. He's about ready to go to the cross. He's been telling them that. Not only am I going to die, but you guys are going to die, and this, this is a road of suffering. And they're still focused in on the idea the kingdom's coming, and it's going to come fast, and we want to know who's going to be bad, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. No wonder they didn't answer them. They were embarrassed. 
Their hand got caught in the cookie jar. They were ashamed. They didn't want to admit to him what they were arguing about. Because it says they've been arguing about who would be the greatest. I mean, these are the disciples of our Lord. And here they are fighting like a bunch of little kids. You see this side of them and you look at them and you say, man, they're just a bunch of proud, self-seeking. And they just wanted the greatest place in the kingdom. That's all they're worried about. And so when they're discovered here in Mark, you can go back to 18, Matthew 18. Jesus unmasked them. He wasn't there with them when they were talking, but he knew he knows everything. He knows what we do in the deepest, darkest secrets of our own heart, of our own lives, of our minds, everything. We're not hiding anything from God. And so he asked them, and they don't say anything. And because they're found out, if you go back to 18, chapter 1, verse, or chapter 18, verse 1, it says they came to him asking this question. See, and Mark kind of says, well, Jesus knew what they were talking about, so he kind of found them out. And then they said, okay, well, we're going to tell them what we've been talking about, but we're going to do it in the form of a question. And they say there, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So they're kind of playing this little game with the Lord. It kind of shows us where their hearts really are, doesn't it? They say, who is the greatest? That means who is greater? Or who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who is greater than great? Who stands out? Who is greater than all the rest, Lord? That's what we want to know. Who is going to be the chief? The head honcho. I mean, their inability to see what's really going on here just baffles me sometimes. But then I look at my own heart and I realize that I'm just like them sometimes. God's got to shake me to get my attention and show me what he really wants me to understand. I mean, how many times has the Lord spent... We've been going over it chapter after chapter, trying to explain to them that the, the kingdom isn't coming in its earthly fullness now. They're still thinking that way. They're still on that track. I mean, all the parables of, of Matthew 13 should have given them some insight. And the Lord's here saying he's got to go suffer, and they're going to suffer at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's actually going to die. And they're, they're still focused on the earthly kingdom. Well, who's going to be head honcho, Lord? That's what we want to know. That's what they're arguing about. You think they show a little compassion toward Christ. But they're so caught up in their self-glory, in their self-prestige, in their prominence, that even though Jesus had been teaching them, he just taught them. We went over it in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. What did he say there? He said that if any man comes after me, what? what? You'll have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. You're going to lose your life, then you'll find it. See, that's, that's the dynamic of kingdom living. It's the opposite of what the world says. And so he's been talking to them about self-denial. He's been talking to them about humility all along. But they're still on this self-glory, self-seeking, grasping prominence kind of a track in their own minds. And so they continue to argue amongst themselves. You can even go over to Matthew 20 a few months after this, if you advance in time a few months, and see that they're still debating this question. 
As a matter of fact, James and John in Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28, they even send their mother to go ask Jesus the very same question. Can my boy sit at your right hand? And you can't really pick on James and John because they all had that same mentality. I mean, this is the team that God, that Christ had handpicked to begin the church to take over when he's gone. And here's what they're acting like. But that's what happens in any kind of a team, doesn't it? Whenever you have ambition and pride and selfishness, self-glory, whenever that's evident on a team, whether it be a team within the church, a team in a business, or a team on an athletic team, whatever it might be, Whenever you have division, and when that rises up, as they're dividing themselves here, arguing about who is going to be greatest, you've really marked the destruction of that team, whatever team it may be. And it goes on all these months, and it never ends until after the cross. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, why were they so stuck on this issue? Do you ever think about that? Why are they asking themselves, especially at this particular time? One commentator points out that maybe it's because Peter had gone fishing. Because Peter, for the most part, is the default leader of the disciples. If you stop and think about it. They knew who the leader was. The leader was Peter. He was their spokesman. He was the, the water walker. <laughs> Peter. None of them ever did things like that. And so you see that here, coming out of chapter 17, where Peter's kind of the focus of the Lord telling him, go down to the, the, the lake there and get a fish, and it'll pay for your tax and my tax. Can't you see the other disciples? Well, okay, wait, what about us? We got to pay our own? Oh, yeah, that's right, it's Peter. Well, Peter is not with the other 11. So they probably begin to think, oh, you know what? Ever since Peter kind of got in trouble with the Lord, I mean, he's the one that was most prominent among the disciples, but he was also the one that the Lord had to turn around and rebuke. Do you remember that? Get thee behind me, who? Satan. What are... And maybe they thought, well, okay, Peter's fishing. He's already messed up. Let's see if maybe it's going to be one of us now that's going to take over for Peter. Peter's been the greatest up to this point, but he's kind of been shot down by the Lord. So maybe it's going to be somebody else. Maybe James, maybe John. So they began to ask this question amongst themselves. And so, to answer their question, it says in verse 2, it says, and calling to him a child. Some people believe this may have been one of Peter's kids. Maybe one of his little toddlers. We knew that he was married because the Bible tells us that his wife's mother, his mother-in-law, was sick. If he was married, he most likely had kids. Maybe it was one of his toddlers. We don't know. It's just speculation. But it says that Jesus called this little child and he put him in the midst of them. He's using this little child as an object lesson. Maybe this will help you get what I've been trying to teach you guys. 
The Gospel of Luke says that he brought this little child to his side. Mark chapter 9 says that he lifted him up and held him in his arms. I mean, can't you just imagine? Here's the disciples asking Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus? And Jesus kind of walks over and grabs this little infant child. That's what that word means, child. It means infant. So it's a young child. It wasn't a teenager. It wasn't even probably an elementary age. It was probably young. And he picked this little toddler up and he held him in his arms. And they're probably thinking, what's, what's he doing? What's interesting is that as you look through Matthew chapter 18, you see over and over and over again, Jesus is referring to us as children. And there's basically five lessons in this chapter. And he begins with using this child as an illustration. The first lesson is that people of the kingdom have to enter the kingdom as children. You have to become as a child. And then he talks about people in the kingdom being treated like children, being cared for like children, being disciplined like children, and being forgiven like children. You can break it down that way. The whole chapter is about the childlikeness of the believer. Well, as we look at the text this morning, let's cover a couple points and see how far we get. First of all, he brings up, or they bring up, the kingdom of heaven. So what are we talking about? Let's define what the kingdom of heaven is. What is it? Matthew uses that phrase 32 times. What is the kingdom of heaven? They're asking who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And basically Christ's answer says you have to turn and become as a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. In verse 4 he talks about the one who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Three times he mentions the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is the kingdom of heaven? Basically, just to summarize it real quick, it's the sphere of God's rule. General term. It's a term that's synonymous with the phrase kingdom of God. They're not two different places. They're the same thing. Kingdom of heaven. Heaven is where God resides. His kingdom. Kingdom of God is the same thing. Some commentators say, oh, no, no, they're two different things. No, they're not. And if you have any question about that at all, all you've got to do is look over at Matthew 19, verse 23. And it shows us clearly that both of them are the same thing. It says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty... Will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven? And then verse 24, it says, Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter what? The kingdom of God. Jesus called them both the same thing. The kingdom of God emphasizes the ruler. The kingdom of heaven emphasizes the character of his ruling, his dominion, you might say. So the concept of the kingdom of heaven simply means to be under the sphere of his rule. Well, how do we do that? Well, in the Bible teaches that to be under the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is you have to be saved. You have to be born again. You have to be redeemed. And so when you see the kingdom of heaven, it's the same thing as the kingdom of God. But it's used in different places in Matthew, in different ways. 
The kingdom of heaven, sometimes, as in Matthew chapter 11, it refers to eternity. That time down the road where we'll be in God's kingdom. Sometimes in Matthew 25, 1, it's referring to the millennial earth. When Christ comes back and he sets up here on earth his millennial kingdom. In Matthew 13, verses, 34, or verses 24 to 30, it talks about the influence of, the Christian, of Christians in the world. And it gives the illustration, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Sometimes the kingdom of God in general, it's going to be made up of believers and unbelievers. This, this is his kingdom. And we talked about that whole parable. For a period of time, there's going to be kind of the mixing of the wheat and the tares until he separates that. Or in chapter 13, he talks about the sphere of Christianity, which includes true and false, dealing with the mustard seed. But then in chapter 13, verses 44 and 46, he talks about the kingdom of heaven and its personal appropriation. How do you appropriate the kingdom of heaven? How do you receive Christ? How, do you, how are you redeemed? How are you saved in a genuine sense? That's what he talks about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, those various things. So you have to understand what context you're talking about. Here in chapter 18, he's talking about that personal appropriation of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about the millennium. He's not talking about eternal down the road, he's talking about you personally knowing that you're in the kingdom of heaven. How have you entered into the kingdom of heaven? Well, he says you have to become like a child. So he's basically wanting them to understand how you can appropriate the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew does that throughout the entire gospel. So he talks about the kingdom of heaven. What is it? It's the sphere of God's domain, his rule. But also then, point two, entering the kingdom of heaven. He says in verse three, except you be converted, some translations say, or turn and become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement. I mean, he doesn't really mix any words here. He doesn't say, well, yeah, there's, there's multiple ways enter the kingdom of heaven. No, he says, basically, there's only one way. In this text, he's saying there's one way. If you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, there's only one way that you can do that. It's very restrictive. It's not inclusive. I mean, we're all born outside the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand that? The Bible says very clearly that we're all born in our sin. We're lost. We're, we're fallen. We're on our way to hell. And unless God, by his divine enablement, touches our lives by his grace and saves us and transforms us, we will have to face his judgment one day. You say, is it important that I enter the kingdom? Well, I would think so. <laughs> if everybody's not in the kingdom, to start with, you might want to figure out how to get in the kingdom. Be kind of like if you were in a building and the person was telling you, you know what, um, if there's ever a fire in this building, there's only one way out. 
And you may be sitting there talking to this individual and half listening and saying, you know what, whatever. Fire in the building, yeah, right, whatever. But if the building's on fire and this person's saying, there's only one way out, I imagine you're going to probably tune in a little more. The smoke fills the room and you feel the heat of the flames. You're going to be wondering, what, what is the way out? If there's only one way, I don't want to be off opening up other doors. My life will be in peril. And that's exactly what the Lord wants them to understand. See, the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's what the Bible says. God wants people in his kingdom. Remember when Jesus looked at the city of Jerusalem and he said, how often I have sought to gather you, but you didn't want to come. God is in the business of bringing people into the kingdom. He wanted to call men to his kingdom and he preached the kingdom of God. John the Baptist even preached the kingdom of God. The apostles preached the kingdom of God. They were calling men into the kingdom. Today, we're to go out into a lost and dying world and say, hey, are you in the kingdom? There's only one way. What's it mean to enter the kingdom? It simply means to be saved, to become redeemed, to be regenerate, to be born again, to come into God's kingdom, into God's family, to come under God's influence, His rule, His dominion, to enter God's world. It's the same thing as saying of entering into life eternal. Because when you enter into God's kingdom, you enter into eternal life. In Matthew 25, verse 21, it says that when you enter the kingdom, it's synonymous with entering into the joy of the Lord. Sometimes you look at Christians and you wonder, you know, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. What's it do? You know, they got this scowl on their face. They're constantly, you know, just negative about everything in their life. There's no joy at all. And I'm wondering, what kind of salvation do they have? Because it's definitely not the salvation of the Bible. When you enter the kingdom of heaven, you enter into life. When you enter into God's kingdom, you enter into the joy of the Lord. And God continuously calls men to enter. Remember, when we were in Matthew 17, it talked about a gate. Remember? A narrow gate. It's not a broad gate. It's not a wide path. It's a narrow gate. It's a narrow path. And the idea is you have to go through that gate. This isn't the price is right. You know, you don't have three choices. Show me what behind, you know, curtain three, Carol Barrow. What's, you know, it doesn't work that way. God's saying there's only one choice to make. And so Matthew systematically goes through and his whole point in this whole gospel is telling people about the kingdom of God. How you need to come in the kingdom of God. I mean, it starts all the way back in in Matthew chapter 3. Where John the Baptist is the predecessor to Christ and what's he doing? He's going around and what's he saying? He's saying, repent, right? For the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the first step. 
You want to know how to get in the kingdom? The first step of entering the kingdom is repentance. And he says that in chapter 3. The first condition of someone who's going to enter that gate, that narrow gate, enter into the kingdom of God, is repentance. What's that mean? Basically, it means that you turn from your sin. You turn from your sin, and you turn to Christ. Recognize your sin and desire to turn from it. That's where salvation starts. That's where salvation begins, in a recognition of your own sin and a desire to turn from it. You've got to be sorry for your sin. You can't just look at your sin and laugh and, you know, make mockery of it. And then if there's a desire there to turn from it. It says in chapter 5 of Matthew, and we've gone through this, in verse 2 when he began to teach them, in verse 3 it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. He talks about being poor in spirit, not just having repentance, but coming before God almost as a beggar. That's what that word kind of means. You have to come before God and turn from your sin and say you're sorry for your sin. And not only say it, but you have to realize that you're before God as a mere beggar. And that beggar in verse 6 in Matthew 5, it describes him as someone who's hungry, who's someone who's thirsty, and he wants to be filled. He wants to be quenched. But he knows he doesn't have any resources in and of himself to do that. And so there's a sense of, you might call it, inadequacy there. You need to repent, but you also have to have an unworthy, humble attitude before God. You can't go to God and say, yeah, I'm going to be saved, and I'm going to be saved by my, the way I'm going to get saved. That's what religion's all about. Religion, the religions of the world basically say, yeah, okay, we're going to save this group of people, but we're going to do it the way we want to do it. So depending on what religion you're involved in, they give you a list of do's and don'ts, and if you do those things, well, then you can be in in God's kingdom. That's not how it works, folks. You come before God in repentance. You come before God with an unworthy heart. That means you're bankrupt. You have nothing. You want to turn from your own sin, and you want to come into the kingdom, and you have no resources to get there. That's the kind of attitude we're talking about, and that leads to humility or lowliness. In verse 7 of Matthew 5, it talks about meekness. And humility. I mean, if you, if you want to get into God's kingdom, you have to repent. You have to have no sense of your own Adequacy. You have to have a sense of inadequacy, and you also have to have a sense of humility. You have to have a poverty in your spirit, you might say. In Matthew 7, verse 21, it says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter, what? The kingdom. 
See, it's more than just talking about it. It's more than just mouthing the words. And that following verse says, but he that does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So you can repent, you can have an unworthy attitude, you can be humble all you want, but until you come to the point of obedience and saying, okay, God, what are you telling me to do? I want to do that. There's a willingness to submit to God in obedience. Repentance is a sorrow for sin, a desire to change, unworthiness, knowing that you don't have any resources in and of yourself, being humble before God because you're just, you know, blown away by his glory. And then bringing yourself into obedience to the will of God, and that leads to simply submission to God's will. Chapter 8 talks about that, talks about a guy who comes along and wants to follow the Lord, verse 19, and want to be in your kingdom. I want to follow you, and Jesus has to turn to him and say, you know what, foxes have holes, birds have nests, I have nowhere to lay my head. Submission to Christ is also required. You have to have an outward confession. The Bible speaks of that. How does someone enter the kingdom? Repentance, turning from their sin, realizing their own unworthiness, being humble, being willing to submit, no matter what the cost, the Bible says. And then outwardly confessing Jesus Christ as Lord before men. Then in verse 37, it goes on, Matthew, and it says, If you love your father or mother more than me, listen to this, you're not worthy of me. Talk about a hard truth. If you love your son or your daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. And he that takes not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. And he that finds his life will lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake will find it. I was always amazed about how missionaries can go to a foreign field when they have little kids. And because it's so dangerous on the foreign field, maybe they're out in the jungle, maybe they're in a, a, a tribe that that's, could be violent. Their children actually have to be in a missions home, in a mission school, sometimes hundreds of miles away from their parents for months on end, 9, 10, 11 months. Maybe out of a a, a 12-month period, they may see their kids a total of four weeks. And I'm thinking, how could you do that? How could you possibly do that? These are your kids. And yet you read that verse, and that's exactly what it's telling you. Nothing, nothing, beloved, should stand in way, in the way of our love for our Lord Jesus Christ or our service to him. Nothing. Even your mother, your father, your son, your daughter. I mean, you don't think I'd like to pull up root and and move back to Florida and then follow them to Washington, D.C. just so I could watch my grandkids grow up? I'd love to do that. I'd do that in a second. That's not what God has for me. That leads to the next thing, self-denial. It's a point of self-sacrifice. And this isn't, you know, somebody who's a, a star Christian. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about 
children. We're talking about basic followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. These, this isn't the, you know, the, the discipleship all-stars here we're talking about. We're talking about anybody who can get into the kingdom. They need to repent. They have to have an unworthy attitude. They have to have humility, obedience, submission to Christ, outward confession, self-sacrifice, self-denial. And also, you have to persist in that. You have to persist. It's a day-by-day battle. In chapter 15, verse 21, that's where you see that persistence in Matthew there. Jesus approached by the woman from Canaan, and she cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter has got an issue with a demon, and he doesn't even answer her. He doesn't even pay attention to her. But the Bible says that she kept up. She kept up asking over and over and over. Finally, in verse 28, Jesus turns to the woman and says, Oh, woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto you as you will. Sometimes you have to persist. See, so many times people come and they check Christ out. Ah, it's not for me. It doesn't work. And they go on. There's no persistence. The people who enter the kingdom press their way in it because it's a restricted gate. It's not easy. They go through the narrow gate. They walk the narrow path. And you know what? There's a price affixed to it. You can't be distracted. You can't be pulled away from pursuing that as a believer. And you can see that throughout the Gospel of Matthew because what is Matthew doing? He's presenting the kingdom. He's saying, here's the kingdom of God and here's how to get into it. Come in, come in. Let me say that, that little list of things there in your notes, all the way from repentance down to persistence, none of that can be produced in the flesh. <laughs> so don't think you can take this little list home and go, okay, Steve said I've got to do all this stuff. No. It's a work of the Spirit. They're all a work of the Spirit. And yet they're elements that bring together who is brought into the kingdom. So when you come to chapter 18, the Lord basically captures all of those things in one single statement. Except you turn and become as a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about? He's talking about simple childlike faith. Childlike trust. Third point requirement for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Oh, well, he says there, except you turn, or some versions say, except you be converted. Better translation is the word turn. It's translated that way everywhere else, that word in the Greek. I mean, where are the disciples? I mean, they just got done arguing about who was the greatest. <laughs> Do you see the dynamic here of what Jesus is telling them? They're self-seeking, they're proud, they're arrogant, they're selfish. I mean, do you think they were repentant? I don't think so. Do you think they had a sense of unworthiness? No. I think they were looking at each other saying, oh, no, no, I got you beat. I'm going to be the one that's number one. 
Were they humble? No, they were proud. Were they submissive to the lordship of Christ? No, they wanted to control their own destiny. Even to the point where they'd get their mom to go ask Jesus, hey, put them at your right hand. Were they self-sacrificing? Not at this point. They were in the, headed in the entirely opposite direction, and yet they were right there with the Lord. Can you imagine being in the presence of the very creator that created you, and yet your heart is so far from him? So far from what glorifies him, from what honors him. You know what that shows me? It shows me that that's a work of God. God wasn't done with these guys yet. He still had to continue the work in their heart. But just being close to Jesus wasn't enough. Do you understand that just coming to church doesn't make you holy? Just reading your Bible doesn't make you holy? Praying doesn't make you holy? All those things are good things. But what he says here, unless you turn around, unless you turn, and that, that, that verb in the Greek, it's, it's in the aorist passive tense. And what that means, it's, it simply means that you've got to be turned around by somebody else. You can't do it on your own. The Lord has to turn your heart around. I mean, it takes you right back to the beginning, to repentance. Conversion and repentance are really the two sides of the same coin. Repentance is being sorry for your sin, wanting to turn. That's kind of the emotional aspect. But conversion is the will that does it. And God's got to work through both of those. You don't just go out and find repentance somewhere and apply it to your life. God's got to grant you repentance, the Bible says. So entering the kingdom begins with a repentant heart and a will that turns to God. I've seen a lot of people turn away from their sin. I've seen a lot of people with drinking issues or other substance abuse issues, and they go through a program and they turn away from that, but they don't turn to Christ. They're still on their way to hell, even though they've cleaned their act up. The same word, turned, is used in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 when Paul commands the Thessalonian church that they turn away from idols. Same idea. In Acts 3.19 it's used and he says, Repent, therefore. Repent, therefore, and be turned. So it's important that we understand that the requirement for entrance into the kingdom through repentance and conversion, is basically you have to become like a little child. You can't march into the kingdom like an adult. When you stop and you think about children, what do you think about? I mean, I think about three things. I think about somebody who's humble. A little child, a little infant, they're humble. I mean, they don't have any, they're not pretentious in any way. Charles Swindoll, one of his books, he gave a good example of this. He told about some kids who built a little fort. And the rules within the fort, put it up on a little chart in their their little clubhouse. Here's what the rules said. There was three of them. First of all, no one acts big. 
Secondly, no one acts small. And thirdly, everyone acts medium. (laughs) See, that's what true humility is. You know, don't go around thinking you're somebody when you're not. Secondly, not only humility, but teachable. I mean, it blows me away how teachable children are, at least until they become teenagers. Then you got a whole other, (laughs) the illustration doesn't apply anymore. Then they know everything, you know. But when they're little kids, when they're they're babies and, 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 and little elementary children, they're so teachable, aren't they? I mean, when's the last time you sat down with maybe your little child and you got the book out and you started to read about the big purple elephant for the millionth time? When... Did that child ever, oh, you're reading that again. I don't want that. No. They'll let you read that book to them over and over and over till you know, you have it memorized. Some of you have them memorized. Why? Because they're teachable. They love to learn. Kids love to learn. Ask a kid, hey, do you know your ABCs? Oh, you want to practice? Oh, sure. They, they want to get into that. They want to learn. Never heard a child, no, no, I'm bored with the ABCs. Little child, man, they're eager to learn. When you offer to read that book to that little child, they don't, they don't ever oppose, are you going to read that one again? Instead, they just absorb it. As if it's the first time. It's amazing sometimes. I remember when my grandson was smaller, he was just learning to read, and sometimes, you know, you'd be reading a book, and you'd think, okay, you know, this is getting real old. So, you know, I'd kind of creatively read the page, you know, kind of leave some things out. Well, you couldn't do that with him. Right? Grandpa, you left some words out. You need to read it again. You know, it's like, okay. He's eager to learn. And even when they get a little older and they're, they're preteens, they're constantly wanting to learn. Follow mom and dad around out in the workshop, in the kitchen, whatever. What are you doing? What are you, oh, you know, and it, sometimes it's almost like a pest, but it's just within them. They want to know. They want to learn. And the first prerequisite, you might say, of this whole thing, the prerequisite is that we must first acknowledge that we don't know everything. We simply don't know everything. And for some people, that's very difficult. That's very hard for them to get over that. I mean, obviously, I'm not the greatest preacher in the world, but you know what? I try to do my best to preach the Word of God to the best of my ability. And you know what? The fact of it is, is if you come here on a Sunday morning and you're at least somewhat teachable, then I I have faith that God will somehow take my mumble-jumble words and His Word and somehow teach you something through a sermon, through a message. I mean, if God can speak through a donkey in the Old Testament... You know, the parallels, they're rather clear, you know. <laughs> so many times I hear people, they'll go here, preach, or I don't get anything out, I don't get anything. Well, then you're not listening. You're not, you're not applying God's word. I can see if they're up there talking about the cat in the hat or, or whatever, then that, maybe that, you've got a problem there. But if they're presenting the word of God, maybe it's even in a, a feeble manner. But it's still God's word. Are you teachable? Proverbs 16.20 says, whoever gives heed to instruction prospers. 
and becoming like a little child has that element. Not only humility, but teachability. And then thirdly, dependence. I mean, kids are utterly dependent on their parents, especially babies. I mean, you know, it's curious to go over to see Colby once in a while, you know, and, and uh, you know, he's, he's, now he's beginning to move. He's beginning to roll over. He's beginning to, you know, pretty soon he's going to be up walking around. But, I mean, for the long, longest period there, a couple months, he's just totally dependent, just laying there. You know, he couldn't really do anything. You're never going to hear a little six-year-old saying, you know what, I'm a self-made child. I picked myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm what I am, and I made myself. You're never going to hear that from a kid. They don't say that. Why? Because they're dependent. They say things like, I'm hungry, Mommy. I need help. Will you do this for me? Will you do that for me? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And just as children are completely dependent on their parents, we need to be completely dependent on God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, Paul says this. This is the Apostle Paul. Okay, this isn't some lightweight. This is, this is the Apostle Paul. He says, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but what? God, who raises the dead. On him we have set our hope, and he will continue to deliver us. The biggest mistake you can make in your life is you just think that somehow this is all going to, you know, you're just going to die one day and end up in the dirt, and it's all going to sort itself out. God's word's true, beloved, and it speaks very clearly of a time when we're going to have to stand before God, and he's going to ask you, what did you do with my son? And looking at him in the eyes, well, I just pulled myself up by my bootstrap. That ain't going to work. <laughs> Trust me. Paul, even the great apostle Paul, had to depend on God. And we come all the way to the end here. And we see that he says, the kingdom of heaven is the same as the kingdom of God. It's being under his rule. He talks about those who are going to enter the kingdom, the the process of repentance, unworthiness, humility, obedience, submission to Christ, outward confession, self-sacrifice, self-denial, persistence. And what is the requirement? He says you have to become like a child. All that leads to answer him answering this question that they started off with in verse 1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And his answer is rather simple. It's not hard. It's not difficult. He says in verse 4, here's the answer, guys. You want the answer? Whoever humbles himself like this child. A little child he's got, he's holding there. That person is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about? He's talking about humility. He's talking about that word means to lower yourself, not build yourself up. I mean, if you can't see how the world and and God's kingdom are opposed to one another. In the world, people think they're good. God says, no, you're not. You're bad. You're sinful. In the world, well, you can get better. No, you can't. Unless God saves you, you have no hope. In the world, it's good to be proud. It's good to be, you know, a go-getter and pull yourself out. In, the, in God's kingdom, God's economy, just the opposite. 
You got to go to him broken, bankrupt, saying, God, you know what? I don't have nothing. I'm here because I have to depend on you. The humble are those who are usually aren't aware that they're humble. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody, oh, yeah, yeah, God's teaching me so much, so much humility. I'm so humble now. <laughs> and you're looking at him going, what? What are you saying? What's coming out of your mouth? Humility is no claims, no demands, no rights, no honors. Humility bows lower and lower and lower. It seeks nothing. The one who was in the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ didn't think it's something to hold on to, being equal with God, but he gave up all. And the Bible says that Christ took on the form of a servant made in the likeness of human flesh to the point where he even died on a cross for us. He humbled himself over and over and over and over again. Philippians 2 says part of that humility is esteeming others better than yourself. One commentator, Lansky, says this, He who thinks of making no claims shall have all that others claim and by claiming cannot obtain. Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, everybody is. If you're in the kingdom of heaven, you're one of God's children. That's, that's a pretty great thing. But the Bible says the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. Every, everybody in the kingdom is great. But the greatest are those who are humble. I'll close with this, this little poem. It says, Make me, O Lord, a child again, so tender, frail, and small, in self-possessing nothing, in thee possessing all. O Savior, make me small once more, that downward I may grow, And in this heart of mine, restore the faith of long ago. With thee may I be crucified, no longer I that lives. O Savior, crush my sinful pride by grace, which pardon gives. Make me, O Lord, a child again, obedient to thy call, in self-possessing nothing, in thee possessing all. As we humble ourselves before God, he exalts us. That's the good news, beloved. He gives grace to the humble. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that your word is very clear, that your disciples here in this place were asking the wrong question. They were after the wrong thing. Lord, help us to remember that the kingdom of God is coming under what that means is us placing ourselves in submission to your rule, your authority, your lordship in our lives. 
When the Bible speaks of entering the kingdom of heaven, it speaks of being saved, being born again through repentance, humility, unworthiness, obedience, submission to you, a confession of Christ, self-sacrifice, and persistence. But Lord, for that to happen, we have to become as children. We have to be willing to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And Lord, I pray for each person in this room, if they have not yet put their faith, their trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, have they not cried out to Him, be merciful to me, a sinner, a beggar, someone who has nothing to offer you, God. I don't see any reason why you should save me, but I'm asking you to. In faith, I'm asking you to wash my sins away. Save me from that pending judgment in the future before you. Your word says that I can be saved by your grace through Christ. And I ask that you would show that to me, that you would reveal it to me in a way that only you can, that you would make it real to me, that you would draw me to yourself. Do the work, God. I beg you. That's a prayer he'll answer, beloved. From a broken heart. From a heart that desires to live for him and not yourself. And believers don't forget when we walk out of this room today that there's a world out there that's lost and dying and on the fast track to hell. And we need to be bold in our faith to share the gospel of Christ, to not dance around the issue, but to be willing to be bold in our faith for the cause of Christ. It's through His Spirit that we can do that as we rely on Him. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.